Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the RSA. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for that very warm introduction and good morning, everybody. Really, really good to see everyone this Saturday morning. Slightly strange to be surrounded in this way, but we're going to try and speak uh, in the round. Um, A big part of what I have on my script as an introduction has just been covered so I can rattle right through. I should say I've got my notes on my phone. I'm not checking emails or expecting a call. It is in flight mode as well, so hopefully not going to go off. Uh, So... I'm John McMahon, I'm the Head of Education at the RSA, so as mentioned, that's the Royal Society of the Arts, or to give it its full name, Royal Society for the Advancement of the Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. We're an organisation that's existed for about 260 years. We're a membership organisation, we have an international network of um, 30,000 fellows who are sort of innovators and connectors in all kinds of different fields. Uh, we're the organisation responsible for the, the Great Exhibition of 1851, for the world's first ever uh, public exhibition of contemporary art and all sorts of other things. If you'd like to find out more about the organisation, come and talk to me or, or my colleagues, Keely, Phoebe and Becky, who are at the, they're waving, they're around the room, and they're going to be going around with mics as well. So that's us. Um, enough about us. We've got, as mentioned, three fantastic speakers up today. Hannah Rosewoods first, David Wengro after that, and Lola Olifemi to close this two-hour session. And uh, that last panel is going to be chaired by the amazing Liv Winter as well. So Hannah is a cultural historian with a PhD from the University of Cambridge. Uh, She also taught British history at the university. As mentioned, uh, triumphantly captained her team to victory on University Challenge. Uh, Absolutely phenomenal. We're here to particularly talk about brilliant new book that she's just published, Rural Nostalgia, uh, A Backwards History of Britain. So that looks at our collective tendency to romanticise the past and to explore what that means for us now and our politics and our ideas about ourselves. So Really looking forward to exploring the book with Hannah and with all of you. Uh, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure we've got time for questions, so please get thinking about what you'd like to ask now. Um, Hannah, I guess we'll we'll go straight into it, but, you know, quite quite a broad, but but maybe kind of knotty opener. What what is nostalgia to you? How are you defining it? Um, I mean, I think I look very... I use a very broad definition of nostalgia in the book. Um, just our tendency to, you know, look back with rose-tinted spectacles and idealise the past. Um, but, you know, historically, nostalgia hasn't always meant exactly what we mean by it today. Um, when it was first coined in 1688, it was, it was a fatal disease. Um, it was Johannes Hoffer, this Swiss physician kind of coined the term, you know, he, it's a kind of a, a cod Greek word. He um, kind of cobbled together nostos, uh, the kind of yearning for home and alger pain uh, to describe this, uh, this very mysterious malady that seemed to be affecting Swiss soldiers fighting abroad. And, that, you know, they seemed to be kind of sickening with longing, wasting away. And he said that the only cure was to return to their homeland and become a part of their home once more. Um, but, of course, over time... The meaning of nostalgia changed to kind of refer to the longing for a faraway time as well as place. Um, 
so that's the nostalgia that I'm engaging with. Um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a part of the modern condition. I'm very interested in how it plays out in, in modern history or 500 years of British history. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's, it, it wasn't invented in 1688. You know, I think it's, it's central to the human condition. It's, it's always been with us. I love, I mean, central to the human condition throughout history, but I, lo I love that idea, of that, that paradox of us looking to the past is central to the modern condition yeah. as well. Before we get into the kind of um, macro nostalgia that you really kind of attack in the, or, or delve into in the book, just curious, are there particular things that you feel nostalgia for? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a very nostalgic person. I'm very sentimental. Um, I cry at Paddington Bear. Um, in fact, the last festival I was at, someone asked me what decade I, I was nostalgic for, and I said the 70s, and which, I, you know, was not a decade that I was alive for, and predictably there was an enormous groan from everyone that lived through the 70s. Um, but yet, I, you know, I, I don't want to attack nostalgia per se, you know, I think it's important to recognise that it's not something that we can do away with or even we might want to do away with. You know, sociologists and psychologists emphasise just how, how beneficial it is to us. It's good for our mental health when we look back um, and feel connected to stories where, you know, we look back to kind of family connections that we feel rooted in. That actually makes us more ready to kind of jump out and face the unknown and jump into the future. Um, but, you know, I do... I want to kind of separate that out from nationalist nostalgia. Um, you know, I think feeling wistful about the past is very different to attaching that to a kind of very selective narrative of British history, um, you know, kind of looking back and lionising kind of imperial so-called heroes and leaders... Um, and I think at the moment, you know, politicians and sections of the media are encouraging us to kind of really, really identify with these narratives. And I really want to encourage us to think that it doesn't need to feel like an existential threat to find out that British history is more complex than perhaps we were first taught at school or as children or that we've kind of, you know, absorbed from culture. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh I should say, I didn't use the word attacked yeah. to, you know, try and dismantle it, but to, to, to grapple with. Yeah. And I, I really like that distinction that you draw between almost sort of um, experiential or first-hand nostalgia for events in our lives or for, for, for things that feel familiar, but also that um, constructed or mythologised or shared nostalgia. And in terms of that... Why do you think that Britain is such an interesting case study when it comes to nostalgia um, as a collective lens or yeah. emotion that we experience? I mean, to me, Britain is an interesting case study for nostalgia because I am a British historian. Um, you know, I absolutely... I'm not making the case in the book that Britain is a uniquely nostalgic place. Um, or that, you know... You know, I think we're given this narrative and we have been since Brexit, that kind of Britain is a country kind of perhaps uniquely enthralled to a lost era of power and pride. Um, and I think it's all too easy for us to think that no other nation has kind of fallen into this trap. Um, and I'm not, I don't think that's the case at all. That's not what my, my book's about. You know, I think it's, it's very easy to look to, you know, politicians in other countries who are equally drawing on the same narratives, you know, make America great again, or, you know, the way in which Vladimir Putin is drawing on his nostalgia for medieval Kiev. Um, 
But as a British historian, I really wanted to use these debates we're having about British history in the present as a lens, a kind of an unusual perspective through which to kind of re-encounter British history by looking back and thinking, well, if we're nostalgic for, say, the Blitz spirit, what were people during the Blitz themselves nostalgic for? You know, how does our perspective on British history change when we look back to the people that themselves were looking backwards? Fantastic. And I should say, and for people who haven't read the book, it's configured in a really interesting way where it begins in the present or the recent past, exploring um, how nostalgia has kind of manifested through the pandemic, through the Brexit referendum, but then it begins to project backwards to look at how nostalgia has been used, constructed, experienced through different eras of, of British history. Um, do you think, although you've acknowledged that nostalgia is something that happens in other in other territories, in in other um, nations as well, do you think there's something specific or kind of like granular? Uh, you know, is there a particular granularity to British nostalgia compared to yeah. other nations? I mean, of course, you know, we have had a very particular historic experience. Um, you know, for example. The British Empire, you know, as a kind of locus of, of kind of debates about nostalgia at the moment, you know, we have to today reckon with our history in very specific ways. Not that other countries didn't also have empires, but that, of course, there are particularities to our experience that colour, um, you know, the nostalgias that we we engage with. But I did in the book, I did want to kind of just tweak the narratives that we're given that we think we know. Um, so I think what you know, in particular, one narrative we're given was that Brexiters or like the Leave campaign were uniquely enthralled to this idea of of a kind of great, you know, Britannia ruling the waves, you know, a country that colonised a quarter of the globe, etc. And you know, I don't, I don't think that's the case actually. Um, you know, I think we all need to interrogate the kind of ways in which the legacy of empire has affected kind of how we how we understand Britain today. Um, and actually, you know, I look in the book about how we've really, we've really skipped over the nostalgia of Remainers. Um, you know, it was a very tempting narrative to, to say that, oh, well, you know, the Leave campaign couldn't accept Britain's, um, you know, diminishing, you know, global, global status. So kind of they were retreating into this kind of fantasy version of, you know, free trading global Britain. Um, but actually, if you look at what you know, the really prominent Remain politicians said about the British Empire, they too were kind of saying, no, it's, you know, it's absolutely time that we... So, for example, um, both Gordon Brown and David Cameron in the 2010s, when they were asked to address um, claims for operations in the Caribbean, they said, no, no, the days of Britain having to apologise for its colonial history are over. Like, it's time for us to start feeling pride again. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we need to kind of interrogate the, the, the kind of quite cosy narratives we're given about um, perhaps the other people. It's very easy for us to project our nostalgia or our misremembered history onto kind of other people whose views we don't share. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Just picking up on that, obviously it's kind of really, really clear throughout the book that whilst there might be kind of dominant narratives in nostalgia, the way that it's it's leverage. You're also really clear that it's diverse at any given point in time. It's contested, uh, and that it, it evolves for a complex range of reasons. Just to pick up on 
what you mentioned about the, the referendum. Do you, do you foresee a point in, in this kind of shifting of the tectonic plates, the landscape of nostalgia, when, as we move further into the implementation or further away from having been part of the EU, that kind of revenant nostalgia for that past that yeah. is receding will... I mean, yeah, you'd, ha you'd have yeah. to assume so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think even at the time before we'd left, the, the, the rain campaign was intensely nostalgic for, you know, the sundry cosmopolitan pleasures that the kind of EU was charged with representing. Um, you know, I kind of remember when, like, protests for a second referendum, kind of placards would read things like fromage, not farage. You know, I think there was a huge amount of kind of people investing their personal nostalgia for fond memories of holidays in continental Europe mm. <laughs> into their vision of the EU. So, yeah, I think, you know, of course, that nostalgia is going to continue. That's interesting. Um, just to pick up, you, you mentioned rural Britannia. Obviously, yeah. you speak about it in the book. I, I think it'd be really interesting for people to hear that as an, yeah. you know, as like an inflection point. It's intention when written and, and how we... Uh, how we use it now. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the themes I wanted to pick up on in the book is that the things that we are nostalgic for today or the things that kind of are politically invoked as, you know, eternal British values that we should kind of defend and be proud of, often at the time, those same things were sources of deep anxiety. Um, so, you know, for example, you know, we kind of talk about wanting to revive free trading, global Britain... Uh, we hear politicians kind of invoking anything from, you know, Francis Drake to, you know, the 19th century expansion of empire. Um, I say that, you know, that, that can, kind of contains like an essence or a spirit that we want to revive in the present. But in the absolute heyday of the expansion of, of global trade in the 18th century, you know, free trade was a topic of like immense anxiety and debate. Um, you know, a lot of people kind of worried that that would kind of lead to the end of Britain, well, Britain as they knew it, even though Britain, of course, was a brand new invention in the 18th century. Um, but, you know, a lot of people felt, well, you know, it's all very well and good to expand around the globe, but then won't this change our identity as a bounded island nation? You know, what if, you know, we're importing all these luxury goods, but what if that kind of changes the character of, of Englishmen and Britons? And, you know, there's a lot of people kind of, in this first era of consumerism, looking back and going, oh, well, it was better when we were contented with what we had and we didn't need to kind of plunder other nations for these goods. Um, so this was kind of the context in which the anthem Rule Britannia um, was first written. Um, you know, it, like, it wasn't yet Britannia rules the way it was as a statement of fact, which is how we now sing it. You know, those lyrics were kind of tweaked in the 19th century after the Royal Navy had established itself as, you know, a really kind of dominant force um, within the world. But at the time, it was an exhortation, like, please, Britannia, can we <laughs> rule the waves? Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's important to kind of complicate our idea of these kind of eternal British values that are supposedly represented um, and things like that. And obviously, the... Um the spectre of empire looms large throughout the book inevitably, but you establish also that nostalgia doesn't have to have any specific ideological yeah. content or a frame or, or committers to a particular political position. So, in other words, this kind of regard for the past can underpin both radical as well as conservative outlooks. And alongside Brexit and empire, you, you talk about... Um, 
the French Revolution, for example, and the feelings that provoked here. You also talk about the Chartists and other kind of uh, yeah radical movements in the United Kingdom. So it'd be really interesting to to hear you talk a, a bit more about that. Do you yeah. think our nostalgia today warps? A across all politics, across the spectrum, equally? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think there are a tremendous amount of Labour voters who are nostalgic for the, you know, things can only get better confidence of, uh, of the Blair years. E equal numbers of people on the Labour left, very nostalgic for, you know, the post-war consensus of the 1970s. Um, you know, thinking of a more recent kind of left-wing progressive nostalgia, Danny Boyle's Olympic opening ceremony. You know, an intensely nostalgic narrative, but a very, very different story of Britain's past than the kind of imperial heroes and conquerors narrative that's being given to us at the moment. You know, that was a story about the unexplorized of people power, where, uh, char you know, Chartists would kind of pass the torch to suffragettes who'd pass the torch to Jarrow marches and, you know, a kind of unfolding story of a, of a more tolerant, multicultural, so democratic society. Uh, that is also you know, a nostalgic, partial history. Um, but yeah, I am um, fascinated by the long history of nostalgia on the political left, um, because I think it's a good way of showing how, like, nostalgia is not the backwards-looking emotion we often assume it to be. Um, you know, it's often allied to quite kind of radical visions of change and transformation. Um, so William Morris um, in, the, in the late 19th century, um, you know, we often kind of think of him in quite cosy terms as a, you know, the, the nice wallpaper <laughs> designer. But, you know, he um, was a very committed socialist activist. But a lot of his vision for a more egalitarian future was founded on a very rose-tinted reading of the Middle Ages. Um, so, you know, he looked back to uh, medieval craftsmen living in kind of rural village communities and thought, well, what a beautiful world where, you know, people, you know, live together as a community, they work together, they use their hands to produce beautiful things. And actually, you know, if, you know, could that serve as a protest against the kind of monotony of, of factory labour on a production line? And could that offer a new vision of society kind of after capitalism? Very interesting. Um... The book, as well as your own really, really kind of luminous way of encapsulating, uh, you know, some of the sort of key points that you're addressing, it's full of uh, kind of wonderful nuggets excavated from others. And there's a quote from Roger Fry that really caught my attention, talking about the the incurable optimism of memory. So that sort of amnesiac quality of nostalgia. Yeah. I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Yeah, so Roger Fry, um, kind of Bloomsbury Group member, you know, writing in the immediate aftermath um, of the First World War. And, you know, of, of course, the Bloomsbury Group were kind of, you know, in an absolute revolt against, you know, the kind of values of Victorianism and, you know, were kind of, you know, trying to advance, you know, the cause of free love, um, you know, etc. Um but Roger Fry thought, you know, a huge impediment to that would be that actually, like, the catastrophic... Like, the, the catastrophe of the First World War was kind of actually making people look back very fondly on life before the war and kind of reimagining the Victorian era as a kind of... a lovely time where everyone knew their place in the world and, you know, Britain wasn't kind of threatened with such kind of an existentially, you know, colossal war. Um, so, yeah, he felt there was a kind of resurgence of um, a fondness of Victorianism amongst his contemporaries. Um, 
But actually, you know, a lot of people um, that had themselves fought in the First World War uh, were really trying to kind of counter the, the, the dangers of rose tinting the past by actually emphasising that you know, that, that tendency to kind of hold on to a kind of glorious, heroic version of Britain's history was precisely what had got them into this mess in the first place. Um, so this is the era of uh, Lytton Strachey's eminent Victorians. Uh, so Strachey was a conscientious objector um, and kind of wanted to kind of like, cast, you know, people that were previously venerated as the kind of titans of the Victorian era as, you know, hypocrites, weirdos. <laughs> um, and just to kind of you know, say, do we really need to be lionising these people that led us into this catastrophic global war? Um, but, you know, we also have, at the same time, um, books like 1066 and all that, which were written by um, Seller and Yateman, two people who had fought in the First World War, and they were saying, no, we were led into battle on the promise of glory. We were encouraged to think of ourselves as the kind of descendants of kind of a long line of illustrious military heroes and, and triumphs. And we were, we were encouraged to put our faith in our leaders and kind of follow in, in that example. And it just, you know, sent us into the trenches. You know, we, we realised that our leaders had no idea what they were doing and that, you know, it was, it's, you know, very dangerous to, to kind of invest ourselves in, in too heroic and, and wonderful and glorious a narrative of the past. There's a, there's a really... Uh, powerful and sort of uncharacteristically sort of punchy sort of heavy quote that you give from Robert Graves who yeah. was you know highly kind of grandiloquently nostalgic about sort of myth about poetry yeah. but just that line um, there was no nostalgia in, in the trenches no patriotism, no in, patriotism, the trenches. patriotism in the trenches that uh, that really encapsulates that very very powerfully yeah. so we've, we've touched there upon how nostalgia can be used to mobilize a population to like ascent to war for example there's an interesting re really fascinating portion looking at the um the late victorian era and how advertisers utilize nostalgia as well yeah i mean it turns out uh you know ever since the beginning of mass consumerism um you know advertisers have been selling us uh you know you know, cosy chocolate box cottages um, and, you know, kind of kind of quaint images of, of how wonderful the past was before consumerism <laughs> in order to sell their, their consumer goods. Um, but, yeah, absolutely, um, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, this is the first era in which advertisers are really realising that they can kind of draw on people's emotions to get people to buy things that they don't need. But, um, yeah, they rather than acknowledging that the vast majority of people, um, you know, purchasing their goods are industrial workers living in, like, urban and suburban areas. They're, um, you know, just kind of painting this lovely picture of, like, a ye olde rural Britain where, you know, they say, you know, if, if you buy our products, you know, we're full of the health-giving virtues of nature, you know, we'll kind of inject, um, you know, a kind of lovely version of Britain's past kind of back into the present for the right price. Definitely. And that, that idea of how about, you know, politicians, advertisers, other, other forces that seek to influence a population can leverage not just that kind of very powerful wellspring of a nostalgia for what we've experienced, but for things we've never experienced, yeah. for something that might, you know, that there might be a narrative has culturally been lost to all of us yeah. and how it can be reclaimed. Um, Which we've had since the beginning of, you know, 
kind of human history. Um, you know, of course, like Greek philosophy founded on and myth founded on the idea that we, you know, there was the golden age, you know, of, of gods and and then titans, and it's all been one long kind of downhill struggle to the the iron age of the present, as they called it. So, yeah, I think it's hard to imagine how we'd um, we'd not. <laughs> how we'd move away from these narratives. Um. And on that, or, or, or kind of springing from that, you, you mentioned the final chapter, this kind of concept of um, lost futures, which um, the, there's a kind of music writer and kind of accelerationist and then kind of future Marxist um, author called Mark Fisher really kind of powerfully explored as well. But very, very interested of the interplay between nostalgia and lost futures, so how it might not just be um, harking back to something that has lost, but harking back to past potential and the wrong route has been yeah. taken. Yeah, um, I, the quote I use in the introduction is from um, Carl Valentin, a German comedian and, and philosopher of the absurd, writing in the 1920s. He says, you know, oh, in the past, even the future was better. Uh, it's kind of skewering... Like the kind of like gently skewering the irony of people's perpetual nostalgia for the good old days, but you know obviously the irony hits us differently, um, you know because we know that German history still contains some of the most catastrophic events of the 20th century. When Carl Valentin was was making that joke, you know the future almost always isn't what we think it will be, um, and you know I think you know for us, you know a lot of our nostalgia at the moment extends to things we haven't yet lost. So in, in, kind of in the context of, of global heating and the and environmental crises that, you know, when we watch like David Attenborough documentaries, I think, you know, we're kind of in, invited to feel very poignantly about things we haven't yet lost, but we're on the point of losing. Um, but hopefully... The lessons of, I mean, there are no lessons from history, of course, but hopefully the lessons of history show that an awareness of what is being lost can often be harnessed in the, in the drive to preserve and restore. That's, I, I'd, I'd like to unpick that a bit more. You've actually preempted my final question before we open it up. And looking forward to the other speakers that we have today D David Wengro and Lola Olufemi uh, are both exploring ideas of how we kind of you know, reshape, find, find the routes to, to new possibilities or reconfigurations of society. And David Wengro and David Graeber are obviously really kind of deeply reflecting on the way that a refreshed understanding of history can unlock different future possibilities. Yeah. So a bit more on that would be great. Yeah, I mean, oh, God help you all if you're looking to historians to tell you how to shape the future. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think... The best I can do is to historicise, um, because I think it is reassuring that there isn't anything new about the debates that we're having about British history or the nostalgias we're feeling. You know, the fact that we're feeling these things connects us to previous generations who also felt the exact same thing. So I, I think you know it's reassuring to not know to kind of know that we're not in like a uniquely frightening situation with the ways in which British history is being weaponised um, politically. Um, but yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope we can get better as historians at telling people that you know it's. Of course, it doesn't need to feel like an existential threat to find out that things aren't as simple as we were first told about the past. But actually, like, I want to get better at saying that it's really exciting 
to kind of use the past as a test case for certain things, because only a small sampling of the full range of human possibilities are available in the present. And I think it's easy to listen to politicians saying, well, this is the way the world is. These are common sense principles. This would never work if we tried this. And I think, you know, actually we have, you know, a kind of, we can use the past as a laboratory really and be like, well, is that the case? Um, you know, was, was that the way things were in the past? Um, you know, our understanding of what happened in the past influences what we think is necessary, desirable, and possible today. Um, so, yeah. And, I mean, again, looking forward to, to the next session um, in a little while. David Wengro and David Graeber are really looking at how dominant narratives um, almost bury um, the kind of plurality of the past. Yeah. So the, the need to kind of return to that as inspiration so we'll open it up now if that's all right and i think we might have a couple of roving microphones i can see them excellent so do we have anybody brilliant i'm gonna go to the uh, lady in the lovely almost kind of william morrissey kind of pattern print there well it's it's no coincidence Morris Patton. <laughs> um, I very much enjoyed your presentation. I, I oh, haven't read you. your book, um, but I, I look forward to doing so. Um, from what I understand of your argument, um, and this seems to me absolutely right, um, nostalgia, the nostalgia of the left, broadly speaking, sort of going back to the levelers, yeah. um, 18th century radicalisms, Tom Paine and, and, and the like, have, have broadly developed um, outside the context of imperial history. Yeah. Um, you know, m most moments of left nostalgia have been about um, solidarities within the UK, within yeah. Britain, um, and so on. But once you start to think about, you know, what connection do nostalgias of the left have with imperial history, then you know you do go back to people like William Morris, yeah. um, for whom, of course, there was a very important um, imperial dimension in his. His rom huge romanticisation yeah. of sort of Indian artisan traditions, the whole arts and crafts movement mm. again. Um, uh, so, so the, uh, could you say a little bit more about um, the the sort of international dimension of nostalgias of the left? Because that yeah. seems to me the area that it, it would be very interesting yeah. to pursue. That fascinating series of uh, of, of questions. Um, I'm going to do my best to try and answer them. Yeah, absolutely, of course. Um, you know, a lot of the nostalgic history of the left has been an anti-imperialist history. Um, but, I, but you know, it's, it's, it's complex. Um, you know, for example, like during the American Civil War, um, you know, Manchester textile workers and Yorkshire textile workers had opposing um, perspectives on what, which side they should be supporting because, you know, it, it is complex. You know, it's one thing to have pride in British manufacturing and therefore to ally anti-imperialism to that to say no why would we go out in the world and you know look look to outsource our labor that's you know that that's that's not what makes britain great you know there's that's one strand but then the other is to kind of gloss over the ways in which for example british manufacturing benefits from the import of materials you know in, in horrific labor conditions like you know like manchester cotton you know it's one thing to have huge pride in 
kind of working class history. Um, you know, I'm from Manchester, I should say. So, you know, there's a huge amount of pride in it being the kind of crucible of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and it was something that was taught to me in secondary school. But no one really... The imperial dimension was just not engaged with it with at school I, I was you know I, we were taught separately we had a lesson you know lessons on the transatlantic slave trade but no one then made the connection and said that was where the cotton came from so yeah it's you know it's certainly kind of something I think we should be focusing on more and it's definitely something that I've had to teach myself um, as, as you know I've become a researcher brilliant thank you for a fascinating question I'm going to look around maybe to this side I think um, chap in the front in the pale blue t-shirt there's a mic coming round to you didn't know you were from Manchester I'm from Wigan I was pleased to see yeah. reference to Wigan in the book as well sorry um, just I was quite interested on all of that but have you got any thoughts about the nostalgia of music involved because I'm sort of child of the yeah. 60s, 70s, and I was obsessed as a teacher trying to educate the younger generation into our sort of music. Yeah. Um, I just wonder whether that was something that had gone back a lot longer than obviously the last few decades. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think a fascinating example is um, like the folk revival around the turn of the 20th century. Um, which is something I kind of touch on a little bit in the book, but there was, you know, a huge... In an era of mass urbanisation, um, industrialization, you know, kind of... You know, a really intense pace of technological change. Um, you know, there was a real kind of movement to recover kind of lost and forgotten folk songs and actually to kind of reconstruct things from fragments that had been lost. Um, you know, of course, we have, you know, composers like Vaughan Williams and, and Elgar kind of creating these, these kind of very, like, vernacular um, kind of styles of music. Um, but I think, I think it's interesting um, that we kind of... That was presented, for example, as a kind of a seamless um, kind of, what's the word, preservation. But it was actually, there was a kind of an element of invented tradition to it. And I, I'm always interested in the kind of the hidden anachronisms um, with music that we kind of, I think like pop music, for example, often, um, you know, you'll hear... Like, you know, I could, I could draw on the Beatles for inspiration, but of course, like, the Beatles were drawing on, like, Edwardian music called ditties, for instance. Like, it's interesting that we kind of transplant sounds from one period to another and that, um, you know, we might feel our nostalgias about, you know, the music of the swinging 60s. Um, but beneath that is a, uh, yeah, a hidden history of nostal kind of ironic nostalgia for, like, Victorian imperialist twee. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you. Uh, and th there's a great passage on, uh, you know, the, the Beatles kind of reclaiming, as you yeah. say, Edwardian and Victoria, or this, the 60s psychedelic generation reclaiming the sort of uh, staid rigidity of Victorianism in sort of lysergic and liberating yeah. way. Um, I think we've got time for one more. That was a very quick hand, so the chat with the beard. Um, got a room full of uh, William Morris fans, I think, somehow, which is very rare. Yes. Um, in his um, books, News from Nowhere, where he yeah. wakes up in a socialist utopia, um, is anybody at the moment writing about what they see a utopia being in 50, 60 years' time? I, I, we sort of have... We had that socialist from the Victorian time, then we seem to skip to sci-fi where we were all going to live yeah. off the planet and reminisce about living back on the planet. Who's writing what about 
is anticipated in the next 50, 60, 100 years? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. It's not my area of expertise, but what does spring to mind is... Oh, it's terrible of me. I can't think of the title, but has anyone seen that um, the Simon Amstel satirical um, film in, like, the world where everyone's gone vegan? No. It's, it's really worth checking out. It, like, I watched it, and I just... Because I was doing my PhD at the time when it came out... Um, and I was researching news from nowhere. Um, and it just seemed, I don't know if he was like knowingly drawing on that kind of, um, you know, kind of pastoral communist paradise. But yeah, it's, uh, it's this fantastic um, kind of comedic um, visioning of, of the future where um, everyone's gone vegan, you know, we, everyone lives, in the, the environmental catastrophe has been averted, everyone lives in a kind of beautiful kind of vision of the like, e- ecological future. But almost in a kind of way that um, gen- there was a kind of intergenerational kind of reckoning in Germany in the wake of the Second World War. Now, um, young people are inviting their elders to reckon with how they could have possibly eaten meat. Um, and they're kind of viewing it in, um, in kind of, you know, almost kind of genocidal terms. Um, it's, it's really, it's, fu- it's funny, it's interesting. I'm, I, I'm not sure how serious um, that is as a vision for the future. I, I don't know who's writing the... Uh, the serious manifestos. Amazing. Well, Edward, I mean, on that very quickly, I'm not aware of literary uh, kind of projections of potential futures gaining traction now. I think that's an interesting area for for somebody to explore and for, for new for new writers to tackle. There's obviously like post-capitalism by Paul Mason, fully automated luxury communism by Aaron Bastani. There's a great book called Inventing the Future, which tackles robotization, automation, and how that is reclaimed in a progressive way. can't remember the authors. It's on Ver- published by Verso. Um, on that, I'm afraid that's all we have time for now. Hannah, absolutely brilliant. I wish we could have had twice the amount of time, but you're going to be... Thank you so much for having me. No, wonderful. It would be great to have you back at RSA House sometime as well. Um, you're going to be... In the book tent, shortly doing signings as well. If people don't have the book, it's a perfect opportunity now to pick it up as well. And for any questions that you didn't have the chance to ask Hannah just now, yeah. just across the way. I'd love to answer them. Yeah. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, I mean, that's also a dilemma because I, I would also like to keep you here for the next speaker, which we're going to be moving on to. But please do go over there and... and definitely buy the book all of today's speakers their books are available across the way but hannah brilliant so great to meet you great to have this conversation thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure thanks for listening if you like this podcast head to our youtube channel for inspiring talks interviews and animations